A very warm welcome to PinPods, the podcast that hopefully networks our Pinnacle Network. I'm Helen Parker, the CEO. I often have interesting conversations with people who are developing how they deliver their services, challenging the status quo, or critically thinking about primary care from different perspectives. And the podcast is to share these conversations with you. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know would make for interesting listening, let me know and my microphone will travel. Today I'm in conversation with Dr. Glenn Davis from Topol Medical Centre. Glenn's got some interesting views and approaches on how Topol Medical Centre have changed their approach to managing patients with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. I think you'll find it an interesting listen. I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Davis to uh, the podcast series today. Thanks, Glenn, for your time. One of the reasons I was keen to interview Glenn is that he's been very involved in the development of lifestyle medicine here in New Zealand, and particularly with regards to management of diabetes through the keto diet. It's quite a, a controversial subject I've discovered in medicine and in the general practice community, so I thought it'd be good to hear Glenn's views on the topic. So thanks, Glenn. But first, a little bit about yourself and where you practice. How did you get into medicine? That's, that's an interesting story as well, because I was going to do dentistry and I got accepted for medicine and then I, I turned it down. And then I met this, this outstanding registrar that came to visit my grandmother um, and he was just the loveliest man I'd ever met. And wow. I was sitting down in front of the garage in the sun and he just came and sat down on the ground beside me and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I've just turned down medicine. What do you reckon? He went, yeah, probably a good decision. But then I went, wow, if, if doctors can be like that guy, then I'm happy to be a doctor. So if you hadn't met that guy, would you think you'd have been a dentist? Yes. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and do you regret it? No. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Okay. I think it's an absolute privilege to practice medicine. I, I think that gives us perhaps the greatest opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Hmm. So Glenn's a, a director at Topor Medical Centre and you've got about 16,000 patients. So when you were in med school or just qualified, did you envisage yourself being a GP owner in a relatively large practice? Well, I didn't come from a medical background, so I really knew nothing about what to expect. So no. Right. So what brought you into primary care? I didn't really find a specialty that, that grabbed me. And also, I just was sick of having no money. I just really wanted to start my life. Right. So it was kind of a default option, but in the end, it was a fantastic option. So that's interesting, because normally what I hear from GPs is that if they were in it for the money, they'd have stayed in hospital and become a specialist. Meaning um, it allowed me to start earning an income sooner than if I'd um, stayed and done the six-year specialty training. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So when did your interest in lifestyle medicine begin? Yeah. So a patient um, called Wayne Richmond, he came into my office and he basically called me a useless bastard and he put six books on my desk and he said, you need to read these. So I sat down and read them and those six books changed my life because it, it really just showed me what we're doing with pharmaceutical medicine is often 
missing what people need. And it really started me asking the question, what actually works? And my criticism of pharmaceutical medicine, although it has a place, I think it has a limited role. Um, and I think the key is really fixing people's metabolic health. Um, and you do that with lifestyle, you can't do that with medicines. So how long ago was that? It's about three years that I've been um, heavily involved with this. It's sort of consumed my life for the last three years. So having read those six books, what did you then do? Well, so we started meeting a group of us, um, sort of a peer group. Um, so there was a naturopath, there was a research scientist, there was Wayne, there were interested members of the community, and we just started talking about um, what health looks like. And then it expanded and that um, patients, particularly patients with diabetes, started coming along and the group got bigger and bigger. We started meeting every week um, and it eventually got to about 60 people and we got thrown out of the, the room beside us because that only accommodated 60 people. So we started looking around for venues. We used Marae. Uh, we went down to Waitahanui and I was expecting about 10 people. There were 160 people there. So these groups just got bigger and bigger and that's what reverse type 2 diabetes evolved from. So I'm sure some people listening to this will think, how do you go from a GP who's read some books and developed an interest to diabetes patients just turning up because a number of particular practices I've um, been working with who have tried to develop the group consult or the shared medical appointment so say how difficult it is to the, the administration mm. of just organizing and getting patients to come along yeah. so how, how did, did you just happen? go to having that many patients who were what did you do well, this was just an organic process and that um, one person would talk to the next person and they'd come along and I think it's really evolved from the fact that it's extraordinarily successful. You know, um, people saying, I've lost 45 kilograms in a few months without being hungry, or I feel so much more energetic, or my joints don't hurt anymore, or I've reversed my diabetes. That's just really powerful. I think people are looking. You know, people are coming to their doctors and they're wanting successful interventions and they get offered medicines and they're just disappointed. Huh. You know, and, and I think the fact that, that people find this so successful and it works so well, I think one person talks to the next person and the groups just got larger and larger. There's now 2,400 people on the Reverse Type 2 Diabetes Facebook page. Probably about 30 to 40 people come to our regular meetings, but we have um, larger meetings at the Great Lakes Centre. Um, we had one on Thursday. There were 200 people at that meeting. And that was spectacular. That was um, Dr. Matt Phillips and um, Sirona Ramaka. And he talked about um, ketogenic diet, fasting, and cancer. And Sirona, um, she, um, Matt reported her case in Frontiers of Oncology. Um, and she was the first person to reverse a stage four metastatic cancer with um, metabolic therapy only. So, um, so fantastic talk. And, and his talk was, I think, the best lecture I've ever heard because he really allowed me to understand what true medicine looks like. 
and it's very different from pharmaceutical medicine. I don't know, I just don't know how did this happen that as a doctor you take a history, you examine the patient, you make a diagnosis, and then as a complete reflex, every single time you reach for a script pad, you know, how did that ever happen? I, I think medications have a place. I suspect about 10% of the time it's appropriate and 90% of the time we're dealing with chronic metabolic illnesses that need lifestyle intervention and not medications. And do you know the craziest thing? The craziest thing is type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance and high insulin levels. Hmm. Where did we ever get the idea that insulin is the right treatment for hyperinsulinemia? I, I know where it comes from. It comes from misunderstanding the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But when I see a type 2 diabetic being prescribed insulin, I'm going, that's a brain fart. You know, that's somebody just hasn't actually thought about the cause of the problem. And and that, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but... You can say anything. You know, I, I think it's malpractice. Okay. It's malpractice to prescribe insulin for a type 2 diabetic who has high insulin levels. Now, there are some insulin, you know, there are some type 2 diabetics, a very, very small number, who actually have a burnt-out pancreas and they do need insulin. But the vast majority of type 2 diabetics have high insulin levels, so to give them insulin is just not thinking. So what's your, so let's just take a step back a bit for people that are not familiar with the reverse diabetes or the metabolic programs that you're doing. What what course of treatment? Oh, I suspect yeah. that's not the right phrase. Yeah. Are you actually? Yeah, I raced ahead a little bit, didn't I? Yeah, that's okay. Okay, so what? Let's okay. What? So type two diabetes. Um, is caused by insulin resistance, specifically insulin resistance in the liver, and that results in high insulin levels. And insulin is the controller of our metabolic health. Um, so referred to as the fat controller, if you think of Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm. If your insulin levels are high, that tells your body to go into the anabolic processes and to build. And if your insulin levels are low, that triggers catabolism, which is repair and recycling. Some of the important words in there are autophagy. So autophagy means to replace damaged cells, and 30 to 50 billion cells are replaced every day. 30 to 50 billion cells in each individual human are replaced every day. However, when your insulin levels are high, it turns off that process. Mm. So you have to have times when your insulin level is low for that process to occur. And one of the biggest mistakes that has ever been made in the history of uh, medicine, and I hope I'm allowed to say this again, was in 1977, the food pyramid was invented. You can, you can track metabolic health markers like type 2 diabetes or obesity from the beginning of time. You can go back millions and millions of years to the beginning of humanity and there really wasn't a major problem with obesity. It was a little bit of a blip around 10,000 years ago when agriculture started. But 1980, you can pinpoint the day in 1980 where there's a flatline graph and suddenly an escalation. Now we have a, we have a tsunami of diabetes mm. and obesity. Mm. Three years after the food pyramid was invented and what the food pyramid said was eat six to 11 servings of grains 
and carbohydrate-rich foods, and the world has got fat. The Western world has got fat as a consequence of that appalling piece of advice, which was not scientific. It was just somebody who had a theory, who manipulated some data, and was an extraordinarily persuasive speaker. Do you not think... I don't remember, for example, being taught that you have to eat to eat like that. Do you not think that some of the contributory factors of the rising levels of obesity is due to more sedentary lifestyles compared to where people are out foraging and gathering and having to run for their run after their meal as opposed to sitting in it being delivered by Uber Eats? And you know, I remember watching the um, the Super Size Me film on McDonald's and um, um, tracking the where McDonald's had opened globally and then what that how that correlated to rising levels of obesity saying that actually part of it was around the the development of the fast food industry so you, how you know do you see that so as being part of it as well I'm going to be upset in the pharmaceutical industry but also upset in the lifestyle <laughs> medicine industry because I think it's virtually all food I think it's got very, very little to do with the other factors, although they are still important. I think food is food and diet is by far the big ticket mm. item. And it's not the fact that people are avoiding walking or making their food. The fast food problem is that it's a big carbohydrate, mm. gluten-rich bun. That's the problem. Mm. Fast food is based around bread, mm. and it's the carbs and the bread that's the mm. problem. So what I'm what I'm picking up in some of the debate around, particularly the keto diet, is practitioners on the one hand who say actually if you want to reverse pre-diabetes or type two diabetes or manage obesity, then any weight loss reducing diet that's going to fit with that person and that person's lifestyle mm. is a good thing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, which I think you fall into, but you might want to correct me where people say no it's got to be the keto diet okay so i'm, I'm interested uh, I in your love, views i'm interested love to answer that question <laughs> because, because um matt phillips made a and matt phillips is who uh, he's a neurologist from waikato hospital okay he um he did a trial on um, parkinson's disease and ketogenic diet he's just finished one on alzheimer's and park and ketogenic diet um, he's written this case report on cancer and ketogenic diet and he's about one to start one on glioblastoma and ketogenic diet mm. but he made the comment he says i don't care what diet you do mm. as long as it's keto okay but let, let, what he meant is i don't care what diet you do as long as you're producing ketones okay so it doesn't matter if you're calorie restricting it doesn't matter if you do a whole food plant-based diet. It doesn't matter if you're vegan. It doesn't matter if you're vegetarian. It doesn't matter if you're carnivore. It doesn't matter if you're low-carb, healthy fat. It doesn't matter if you're keto, as long as you are producing ketones. And that's the key. And the reason that's the key is that if insulin levels are high, you cannot produce ketones. If insulin levels are low, you can produce ketones if you keep them low for long enough. So... And on the other thing in there is fasting. Fasting is the most powerful method of producing ketones. So choose the diet that's right for you. Right. And it doesn't matter. And, and I frankly don't care. I'm just as happy for someone to be vegan as I am for them to be carnivore. It, it really doesn't matter 
as long as the outcome is that you are producing some ketones. And, and I think that's the real key to, to this diet wars. You know, let's stop fighting about the tool. You know, mm. is a Phillips screwdriver better than a yeah. uh, better than an ordinary screwdriver? Yeah. Or no, they're both tools that do a job. Okay, it's the metabolic outcome that's important, and the metabolic outcome is that you must get insulin levels under control, right? And and these are not separate illnesses. Okay, obesity, type two diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, gout—they are all the same illness. Mm. You know, and even cancer. You know, fascinating what Matt Phillips said in this talk. He said, take a normal cell. Because you know how we said that cancer is a problem with the genetics? It's a genetic disorder. If you take a normal cell and you transplant a cancerous a nucleus into that cell, it remains a normal cell. You take the mitochondria from a cancer cell and put them in a normal cell, and that cell becomes a cancerous cell. It's transferred by the mitochondria which are damaged and the mitochondria are the energy producing part of the body. This fascinating fact that, that blew me away. A 70 kilogram human produces 70 kilograms of ATP per day. 70, that tiny little molecule, which is the energy molecule that's you know, yeah. produced all the time, 70 kilograms worth. You know, I had to look that up in so many different places to see that it was actually true because that sounds completely mm. rubbish. But that's how much energy we are producing every mm. single day. So if you've got mitochondria that aren't producing enough energy, then in cancer, then there's not enough energy to reproduce the DNA properly and the cell becomes cancerous. So cancer is a metabolic problem. Alzheimer's disease, they're referring to that as type three diabetes, it's insulin resistance of the brain you know, type 2 diabetes, all of these conditions are the same problem. They're all a metabolic illness. They're all related to fuel, and they can all be influenced or cured by the correct metabolic therapy, which is diet and fasting. So given that then, why is it not mainstream? Go back to 1977. So there were two parts to the... Um, the food pyramid debacle. One was increasing the consumption of, um, of grains. The other one was removing saturated fat. The idea, the diet heart hypothesis, the idea that saturated fat is the cause of ischemic heart disease, complete bollocks, 100% bollocks. I'm not sure how many people I've annoyed now, but it is just... <laughs> I know, just, I want the podcast to be uh, challenging. It's not true. Um, if you look back to the data that was available back in 1977 to the committee that made that decision, there it does not support in any way the advice to lower saturated fat. And even if you look now in 2019 at the data that's available, again, it doesn't support a public health measure to reduce saturated fat. It's not saturated fat, it's carbs, it's sugar. Sugar is the cause mm. of ischemic heart disease. Saturated fat is not. In fact, I'd be more afraid of canola oil and margarine than I would be of, a, of butter and avocado mm. and, and mm. olive oil. You know, these modern oils are inflammatory. These traditional oils that we've managed since the beginning of time, like, was it 
six six million years or whatever, you know, we we can handle those genetically. We can manage it. This margarine, you know, someone said they went into a margarine factory, and there's this grey stuff dripping off the walls. You have to dye it and put flavour. You have to put flavours, mm-hmm. dyes, and deodorisers in margarine to make it even look like something you could eat. I mean, that's not going to be good for you. Mm. And it's, it's it's like the low fat, the labelled foods in supermarkets, which are a bit misleading when you look at them and see how much sugar uh, read, is in there. Read low fat, read high sugar. Mm. Okay, we recommend people choose the high saturated variety. You know, so choose Greek yogurt, not low fat yogurt. Um, choose the fatty cuts of meat, not not the lean cuts mm. of meat. You know, saturated fat is not the problem. It's, it's sugar and refined carbohydrates that have caused obesity and type 2 diabetes mm. and ischemic heart disease. Mm. I would, it would be fantastic if this was a, a video because I'd draw you this, this beautiful diagram, but let me explain ischemic heart disease. Okay, so you eat a carbohydrate. Those are sugar molecules joined together. You digest those, that carbohydrate, it becomes blood sugar. Yes? The blood sugar goes into the liver and through a process called de novo lipogenesis, the making of new fat, it becomes triglyceride. Yeah. It gets transported around the body, and um, so APO, ApoB100 forms that lipoprotein body, gets filled up with cholesterol, triglyceride, and some, uh, some fat-soluble vitamins. It gets transported around the body, and those products get dropped off where they need it. Okay, so it comes very low density LDL, that contains a lot of triglyceride. Get rid of some triglyceride, it becomes intermediate density. Then it becomes LDL. Then you lose some more triglyceride, it becomes HDL. How did LDL cholesterol, which was which is bad cholesterol, how did it be, how was it good cholesterol? A few, a little bit later it's bad cholesterol. Mm. And then it drops a bit of triglyceride and it's good cholesterol again. That's just ridiculous. That's not scientific at yeah. all. Okay, it's not LDL cholesterol is not bad cholesterol. Damaged LDL cholesterol is bad cholesterol. And how do you damage LDL cholesterol? You glycate it by too much glucose in the blood, or you oxidize it by some of these horrible oils that we're using. And then that small dense LDL can no longer be taken back up by the liver. And do you know where it gets taken out of the body? The only place you can remove damaged LDL is by specialised macrophages in the artery wall. How does oxidised cholesterol get into the artery wall? It gets in there because it becomes small dense LDL, it gets taken up by the macrophages and it stays in there. That is the genesis of atherosclerosis, it's sugar. If you think right back to the beginning of that, it's sugar and carbs, it's not um, saturated fat that you eat. I'm still. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I haven't got the uh, the biomedical background to either challenge or agree with you. What I'm interested in is, given what you say and what you've seen and the success that you've seen in your in the community that you've been working in promoting the diet that produces ketones, <laughs> to be forever known as. Um, why do you think so few? GPs and general practice teams have uh, adopted it, uh, particularly given the obesity levels of New Zealand. 
intellectual laziness. Okay, you at medical school, you get told that you're the cream of the crop, you're the brightest of the brightest. And when you leave medical school, for some reason, you have this idea that you know everything or virtually everything that you need to know. And it is so untrue because science is accelerating so, so quickly. You know, the amount of science that was produced 100 years ago compared with the amount of science that's produced now, you know, massive. And how do you keep up with that? If you're talking about saturated fat being bad, you are 30 years out of date. If you're talking about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, you're 20 years out of date. If you're talking about small, dense LDL cholesterol, you're actually starting to get up to date with the science of lipids. You know, and I don't know, how, how do you transfer that, that information that you can find so many lectures on YouTube? Ken Sakaris is a, um, uh, he's in Brisbane, and he gives a fantastic lecture on YouTube that explains all of the science, beautifully presented. It's, it's out there, you can find it so easily. You know, you don't even have to go to the journals nowadays. You can you can go to YouTube, find these fantastic lectures, and it'll explain very, very clearly that saturated fat is not a problem. Mm. Sugar is the problem. Mm. So if we're still concerned that a ketogenic diet or a, a low-carb, healthy-fat diet is going to cause heart disease, we just have to go and do the research, and we just have to find out that that's actually old-school, that's proven wrong. But medicine prides itself mostly, so orthodox traditional medicine, on being evidence-based. So in effect, what you're saying is a lot of the, the medicine that's delivered, particularly supporting obese patients or patients with type 2 diabetes, is not evidence-based. Oh, Helen, don't get me started. <laughs> no, no, yeah, that, because I, I think like, this is where it's... Because... Yeah. Well, the evidence is there, but how does how does that evidence become guidelines? Yes. And and as we know, we just have to go back to it was Semmelweis, wasn't it? He he was the Hungarian gynecologist who worked out that if you wash your hands, um, your woman don't die of puerperal sepsis. Mm. Um, he died of puerperal sepsis after being thrown in a um, in an insane asylum for for suggesting that you should wash your hands, which is a whole interesting story. But 50 years between him proving that the that woman didn't get the same rates of puerperal sepsis if you washed your hands between doing autopsies and vaginal examinations. Duh, gross. Anyway, 50 years before that became mainstream practice. So there's this lag time. So the science is there the lag time for it to become part of, of practice. Right. You know, and, and I guess what we're doing here in Taupo is we're not waiting for government. We're not waiting for medical guidelines because this town has become keto town. You know, everyone is, well, everyone, I'm exaggerating. You know, a vast, a lot of people in this community are just doing it, resolving their chronic health problems, proving that it works, we're not, we're not waiting. This is a, a ground-up change. Mm. You know, if we were to sit around and wait for, a, you know, the Department of Health to decide or the Royal College of General Practitioners to decide, we'd just be sitting here waiting and we're going, nah, we're not. Because there's now 105 patients in this practice that have reversed their type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. 
So 105 patients at the TOEFL Medical Centre that were type 2 diabetic that are no longer type 2 diabetic off their medications. Okay, so to me that's a really big number when you consider that three years ago there were none. Because we used to think that type 2 diabetes was a chronic progression mm. to insulin, mm. to, um, to blindness, to dialysis, to limb amputation. It's just not the case. It is simply and easily reversed with the, type, with the right metabolic tool. So what data are you collecting in yeah. terms of, we've had some discussions about you applying for grants to get some of this, because obviously what, what needs to happen probably mm. is for there to be a proper research project and the data collected and the mm. data used that you've started to collect. Yeah. I sat down yesterday and I spent seven hours doing data entry. And although this, this, these results are exciting, Data entry just does not turn no. me on at all. But I got through half of the um, of the fifty, so um, so I did work out um, you know what what the outcomes were with all of all of those um, um, patients, um, which we might go into or it might be a little bit boring, but it, it it definitely works. But that's the that's the patients at the Topol Medical Centre that I've recorded data on. In the community and in reverse type 2 diabetes, there are many, many more that have reversed their diabetes and come off their medications and no longer have the same degree of joint pain um, mm. and have more energy and have spontaneously started exercising and who don't feel hungry and who sleep better. So. And are they sustaining it? So when I was re just when I was look, uh, reading up on some of the the research and the evidence base for the diet that produces ketones, <laughs> or particularly actually I was looking at the the pure keto diet. Some of the discourse around that was that the studies were small numbers of people over a short period of time, which did produce some good results. But the the test would be whether people were able to sustain it and maintain the good, the good habits and not go, go back to old habits. So I'm just interested in what you're seeing here. It's almost like I ask you to answer that question. <laughs> no, you the didn't. answer is... Um, <laughs> so I analysed um, 47 um, people. So of the people that had pre-diabetes that brought the HbA1c down to normal, 88.9% have sustained it for around two years. Okay. 88.9%. So there were three who didn't. So three that went from pre-diabetes to normal back to pre-diabetes. But interestingly, there were none who went from pre-diabetes to diabetes. So I, I'm not sure if I'm recalling this stat correctly, but I think 6% of pre-diabetics become diabetic each year. Okay, none did. Okay, okay. You know, so, so that's eighty-eight point nine percent. So to answer your question, in that cohort, yeah, um, a vast majority um, stayed sustained non it non-pre-diabetic, yeah. and of the diabetics, um, seventy-five percent sustained their remission for around two years. Because we started this um, in like the end of two thousand and seventeen, so, so two to three years, 75% um, have. But see, that's really interesting because a type 2 diabetic, some of those will have a burnt-out pancreas and they actually will require insulin. Um, 
some of them have a disordered relationship with food to start with, so it's, it's a more complex issue than just having a metabolic disease. There's also mm. an eating disorder or, a, or an addiction to carbohydrates. Mm. So to answer your question, yes, it's sustainable. And, and what I also find is when people do fall off the wagon, they feel terrible. They not not psychologically they feel terrible, physically they, they feel, feel terrible so. because people start feeling well, they feel energetic, they're sleeping well, and then they'll have a plate of ice cream or a, a donut and they just feel really, really terrible. They'll feel mm. nauseated and their joints start hurting again and they just go, Well, I'm not doing this, this is horrible. So do you think this is a role of the GP? Do you think supporting patients to reduce obesity or reverse type 2 diabetes is a GP role or do you see it being predominantly I don't know a dietitian or a health coach or a t- or a team-based approach I guess what I'm saying is if it's a if it's a modification of diet is that a good use of GP time because 70% of our consultations are chronic disease management and all of these conditions, without exception, are caused by metabolic illness. So if you don't treat metabolic illness, and the treatment is diet, what are you, what are you doing? You know, like those 70% of consultations, are you just wasting your time? So do we need, so do we need more dietitians and fewer GPs? More dietitians, <laughs> oh, please. You know, um, I've started... Or health coaches. Health coaches, absolutely. So, do we need yes. more? Do we need more health coaches and then fewer fewer GPs? If you're saying that seventy percent of potential GP consults could be, I know I'm, I know I'm going to extremes here, it could be eradicated if people were on successful yeah, metabolic we programs. We need a team. We need a team, you know, and and we probably haven't worked out the exact ideal makeup of that team, but certainly will be health coaches and ideally health coaches that understand metabolic illness. Um, so health coaches, I think, would be the main ones, your diabetic nurses, your dietitians. But I think it starts with the GP because the GP has to make the diagnosis and say, yeah. you have metabolic syndrome caused by high insulin levels, caused by insulin resistance, caused by not eating the right way for you at the moment. You know, and th- and that's... You know, the, what's the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause? You know, if you go, you have diabetes and you need some metformin and some glyphoside, mm. you haven't even started thinking about the cause of the cause. Mm. Mm. You know, so mm. start going back. What's the cause of the cause of the cause? And in the end, it comes back to people not eating the right way mm. for them at that time. So who else in New Zealand is doing this sort of work? Who's yeah. What network... Have you got? Yeah. So Lily Lily Fraser is um, in Mangere. She's extraordinary doctor doing wonderful work in her community, um, particularly with Polynesian people. Um, and then dotted around the country, there's there's other doctors that are starting to become involved in this. Mm. Um, I think it's still pretty early. Mm. Um, Precure, which is a a for-profit social enterprise in Auckland. They they do a, a lot of um, uh, fantastic programs um, training people to use these um, metabolic tools. Mm. Um, so you set up, you established the New Zealand chapter of the 
Australian Society for Lifestyle Medicine. What's so Australasian? Australasian, because, okay. Yeah, the New Zealand chapter. Yeah. 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 So, and what's what's happening? Is is that? Yeah. Gearing, so, promoting. Yeah. yeah um, COVID, COVID yeah. kind of. We had a. We were going to do a symposium. It was pretty well organised, and then we couldn't proceed. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful about the future? Do you think? Do you think this way of approaching treatment and care will become mainstream? I think we're at a tipping point because the pharmaceutical industry will resist this, the, the food industry will resist this, and they must because their livelihood depends on it. Because, you know, and not the whole food industry, because, you know, our primary produce. You know, this is about eating meat, fish, chicken, and above-ground vegetables. You know, there's nothing weird about what we're telling Mm. people to eat. You know, this is chicken salads. This is is, um, steak and broccoli and cauliflower. Nothing weird at all about it. Um, This is eating Greek yogurt and berries for breakfast. You know, so there's a whole lot of our primary industry that supports this. But then you've got the ultra-processed products, which are the problem. And and sugar sweetened beverages, for example, you know, like I I would I know that there's an argument against taxation of of bad stuff, but this is poison, you know, mm. like like really really bad poison. And to let children drink it, you know, to let someone under the age of eighteen, you know, I'd say ban it under the age of hundred and eight. If you're over hundred and eight, you're allowed to buy Coke and Fanta. Mm. Below hundred and eight, it should be banned. You could maybe bring the age down, but the point I'm making is, why do we let children? Mm. Why do we let children drink Fanta? Mm. It's it is absolute poison, and it's mm. it's sucrose, which is fructose and glucose. The body kind of knows what to do with glucose, mm. but it doesn't know what to do with fructose. Fructose is probably the cause of insulin resistance mm. in the liver which is the cause of this problem. Mm. So. so I'm just asking for a friend. So when you, ha- when you have your steak and broccoli yeah. and vegetables, can you have a glass of Pinot with it? Where does alcohol fit? So probably yes, but you might be better to use a, um, a spirit with soda. So that's got the lowest amount of carbohydrate in it. So a gin and soda would be a better option. Then why? So do you drink wine? Yep. Um, the point about individualising this is that I don't have any metabolic illness. I spend most of the time in ketosis. Um, I do some fasting. So, so I think to have a glass of wine isn't an issue for me. However, if I was a type 2 diabetic with metabolic syndrome, with gout, um, or I was a patient with cancer, Shit, no. I, I wouldn't be doing that because, you know, it's higher stakes. And and just to, to follow with that a little bit more, if, I've, um, if I'm a little bit overweight, then low-carb, healthy fat is fine. If I've got type 2 diabetes, it's diabetes mm. probably needs to be keto. But if I've got cancer, high stakes, it probably needs to be fasting. Mm. You know, these are all metabolic therapies. Some are more powerful than others. You know, so... If I had cancer, I would be doing, every month I'd be fasting for a week. And in the other three weeks, I'd be doing keto. I'd be checking my ketones. I would make sure I was in ketosis the entire time. You know, so, and then somebody who's well, 
they can have the balanced diet, which is promoted through the healthy plate model. They can have some whole grains and they can have some kumara and they can have some fruit. Fine. It depends. You've got to individualize and you individualize based on the degree of insulin resistance. And we can test for that. You know, we can measure insulin levels, we can measure C-peptide, we can use the cookie index to determine each person's individual level of insulin resistance, and we can tailor the, the diet intervention to their specific need. You know, if, but if you're a type 2 diabetic, you are highly insulin resistant. No, no doubt about it, you probably need keto. Yeah. So how has the um, practice changed at Topor Medical Centre? Are, are all the GPs um, moving their patients onto this sort of metabolic programmes? So what we've, um, what we've just done is at a clinical meeting, we've decided that the entire practice, every member of the clinical team, will recommend carbohydrate-restricted diets for people with metabolic syndrome. So that's every member of the team. And we're just setting up the program to start on the 14th of January um, to, to roll that out with the Pinnacle Extended Care team um, supporting us with the most um, difficult group. Yeah. So, so that's still in development, but we're hoping that that first phase of that will be a, a, an app which will have a coaching module in it. Um, so so that will be stage one and then after that we'll determine what people's needs are. A lot of people do fine with just monthly HbA1c. Some people will need a um, shared medical appointment program and then others will need the health coaching, dietitian input and the whole um, you know the whole extended care team. So so we're going to put people into those three cohorts okay and with the intention of everyone who enters eventually reversing their, their okay. type 2 diabetes and coming off medication. Okay, so my last question, because I'm conscious that you have got patients to go and see, is, so if a, you know, if there's a, a, a GP listening to the podcast who is really interested and wants to learn more or even start to develop a metabolic program within their practice, what advice would you give them? Where can they go for support or resources or... Yeah, so anyone's, I'm passionate about this, so anyone that wants to email me or phone me or ask me, I would I would love to talk to you. As you can probably tell, I like talking about this topic. Um, Pre-cures that I mentioned before have some really excellent training, but what I would do is start on YouTube. You know, amazing, amazing talks on YouTube and start start doing it, start recommending it and just monitor your patients and get them to come back in a week because um, HbA1c drops really quickly. Um, that data I was analysing yesterday, um, every month HbA1c will drop by 2.86 points. So it drops quickly and that's on average, you know. So every month check their HbA1c and just watch what happens. Get them to tell you how they're feeling, you know, and, and that works. Hey, the other thing, um, just before I go, though, um, I'd love to talk about how this changed my practice. You know, as a GP, when you get slightly abnormal liver function tests, do you know what to do? Or is that one of those results you just look at and you go, oh, should I file it, should I not? Oh, I don't know what's going on. 
I know exactly what's going on almost every time now because it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a manifestation of insulin resistance. I know what to do with that result. I'm sure that there's no GPs in the Pinnacle Network that's ever seen an HbA1c of 41 and stared at it and just filed it, put normal file. Um, I'm sure no one's ever done that, um, but I know exactly what to do with an HbA1c of 41. You know, I know exactly what the therapy should be. So my practice has changed entirely. You know, I know what to do with osteoarthritis of the knees. You know, they don't get referred for a knee joint replacement. You know, put them on an anti-inflammatory diet and watch what happens with osteoarthritis. You know, dramatic changes. Um, so my practice has changed dramatically. I very rarely prescribe a medicine. I have no idea what those new type 2 diabetes medicines are or do SLT somethings. I have no idea because I don't need them. You know? Wow, that's well, quite a statement. I, I've never looked at it. You know, I stop medicines. I'm de-prescribing all the time. And statins. You know, there is no role for statins in women in primary prevention, none at all, zero. You know, the Women's Health Initiative says that, you know, so I'm stopping statins all over the place, you know, and people come back and say, wow, I feel so much better. You know, so de-prescribing is what I do, um, not prescribing, you know, and I spend my time talking to people about what a healthy diet looks like and really, really changed dramatically the way that I practice. Um, well, your passion, and, your passion and your enthusiasm comes across in leaps and bounds. And I'm sure, I'm sure the podcast is probably going to generate a lot of debate, but I think that's a good thing. You know, just from what you're saying, I think uh, having a debate, and particularly within the network, but I suspect more widely, is, is how things change. Um, so your email address is? So it's GD, my initials, GD at topolmed.co.nz and um, yeah please you know argue with me um, skeptics are great you know mm. you should be a skeptic but not so skeptical that you're not willing to admit when you're wrong and if you're a GP and you're prescribing insulin for type 2 diabetics you are wrong <laughs> you know it, it, it's it's a fact you know go and go and learn about what causes it and and contact me argue with me tell me that i'm wrong you know tell me i'm killing my patients by stopping their statins you know by all means i'd love to have that debate but even more if you'd like some resources so that you can start doing this um you know wonderful resources that that i've collected and other people have collected willing to share that with you a fantastic book if you want to just start with the book and um, what the fat uh, Grant Schofield, uh, Karen Zinn and Craig Roger. Wonderful book to, to start with. Um, good Christmas present for yourself. Okay, thanks Glenn. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.